0: Today we're going to be covering the question uh, that says, can we let our conscience be our guide? Can you let your conscience be your guide? That statement alone, let your conscience be your guide, how many have ever heard that? How many have ever probably said that? We all have. Uh, But at the core of that statement is the idea, the false idea that our conscience is never wrong. The only problem with that is that's not always true. How many have ever found that out? Our conscience, a lot of times, is not as right as we think it is. Has anyone ever used a GPS navigation system in your travels? Yeah, that thing has kept us out of a lot of jams, a lot of troubles, got us out of some pretty tight spaces. Uh, But it helps you to know where you are and actually where you're supposed to be going. I say supposed to be going because GPS units... uh, like our conscience, can be fed the wrong information at time and can take us places that we really didn't want to go. And you do realize that GPSs can give you some bad information at times. Kind of like a story I heard about this 68-year-old Belgian woman who set out to drive 38 miles to Brussels under the guidance of her GPS system. She arrived in Zagreb two days and 901 miles later to go 38 miles. She said she noticed that her GPS was taking her in a strange direction, and then she said all of a sudden she started seeing these signs. First they were in French, and then they were in German. She saw signs for uh, the towns of Cologne, uh, Aiken, Frankfurt, Germany, but she says, I asked myself no questions. I kept following the GPS. I was just a little distracted, so I kept my foot on the gas. Mrs. Moreau was her name, even refueled twice on her epic journey caused a minor accident along the way, and slept for a few hours behind the wheel alongside the road. After her son noticed her missing, he called the Belgian police. The Belgian police searched her home and were about to launch a full-scale manhunt when she phoned home, just to say that she was in Zagreb, the capital of Croatia. Let me just say, do you think that GPS was a little bit off? That GPS was a little bit, a lot of bit off. Somehow those wrong, somehow wrong coordinates had been punched into that GPS. But think about it. It's just a mini computer. And a computer is only good as the data that you put into it, right? It's only as good as the data you put into it. You might say garbage in, garbage out, so to speak. Same with our conscience. It's no better than the data we put into our minds. Do you realize that? Our conscience is no better better than the data we put into our, our conscience, our minds, our lives. We need to actually put good data into our minds so that we get on the same page as God. So we start going in the same direction as God and follow His definition of right or wrong. How many have found out that our definition of right or wrong, as right as it might seem it sometimes, is a lot of times wrong? It's not always, uh, always right. Um, so we have a conscience. I just want to make that a point as we start this morning. But I want to talk today about how to trust it, and how not to trust it. There are times to trust your conscience. There's also times not to trust it. And to do that, I want to look at a Bible story many of you are familiar with. But to me, it shows us how our conscience can betray us at times. Um, We're going to look a little closer at this story. Many of you have heard it. It's about John the Baptist. Anybody ever heard of John? John the Baptist and a king by the name of Herod. Well, there are a lot of Herods mentioned in the New Testament. They're not all the same person. And the first Herod we come to is Herod the Great. He was Herod uh, the Great who was in charge when the wise men came from the east looking for Jesus uh, when he was born, if you remember. Uh, But he wasn't called Herod the Great because he was such a good guy. He wasn't called Herod the Great because he was so kind and generous or even that he was such a good ruler. He was called Herod the Great because of all the fascinating accomplishments that he accomplished and all the things that he had built, including the fortress of Masada, which was amazing. He also helped rebuild the Jewish temple, which was many years in the making. But this guy was also known for his craziness. He was also known for his paranoia, his wickedness, his evilness, uh, if that is a word. He went and uh, even killed members of his own family. Had them executed because he was afraid that they might threaten his throne. So he just took them out. So let's just say Herod the Great wasn't such a great guy. Amen? He was a wicked, evil king. Then we step down to his son, Herod Antipas. He took over after Herod the Great. Clearly, the apple didn't fall far from the tree. Herod Antipas was also wicked and evil. Historians said he was so wicked, cruel, scheming, and just totally immoral, and that he had a conscience that was basically in the process of dying. He wasn't a good guy. But on the other hand, the other person in the story I'm talking about today is John the Baptist, Everyone, believer and non believer for the most part, has heard of this guy, John the Baptist. He's one of the most famous, most significant characters in the New Testament. John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus, if you remember. He was a little different, without a doubt. I would say he's the uh, Phil Robertson from Duck Dynasty guy of his day. Amen. He lived a pretty rugged life. I mean, this guy wore clothes of camel's hair, he ate locusts and wild honey. And he was the one that the Bible prophesied as being the one voice crying in the wilderness. But when John comes on the scene, think about this. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was 400 years of silence. God hadn't spoken to his people in 400 years. There hadn't been a single miracle. There hadn't been an angelic appearance. There hadn't been one prophet speaking for God. Just, you might say, an icy silence from heaven. Then out of nowhere, John appears on the scene. And this guy was powerful. When he said something, people perked up and paid attention, and everywhere John went, the crowds went. You might say he was like a rock star of his day. John was fearless, though. He called out the religious elite of the day, which no one else did, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And whenever John would speak, people would swarm him. People were fascinated by what he had to say. John was the greatest prophet who ever lived. That's according to the Bible. He was the last in the long line of spokesmen for God. But this is even Jesus saying something about John, which is pretty amazing. In Matthew 11:11, it says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. John was greater than anyone else because he was the forerunner to Jesus the Messiah. Let's just say John had a pretty amazing part to play in history when you think of all that he brought uh, upon the spiritual culture from going from 400 years to silence, from him breaking on the scene and doing what God wanted to do through his life. But also, Herod and John had kind of a relationship going. In the Gospel of Mark, we read that Mark 6, 20, Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. It says, when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to John. He was puzzled by what John had said to say, but he was still fascinated by what John had to say. So although Herod liked John, his wife Herodias, that was his wife. Ladies, by the way, how would you like to be called Herodias? Herodias, uh, Herod liked John, Herodias hated John. And Herodias and Herod had this bizarre, weird relationship going on because while Herodias was still married to Herod's brother Philip, Herod sweeps in and seduces her and takes her as his own wife. It gets worse than that. Herodias also was the daughter of Herod's half-brother, making her his niece. Let's just say that family tree didn't have many forks on it, amen? I'm just saying. We laugh, but every one of us have a little crazy in our family, amen? We do. We have a little crazy in our family, but I'm wondering about this family. I'm wondering what would their dinner time conversation sound like around their Thanksgiving table? I don't know. They probably put the fun in dysfunctional for sure. I I believe they did. Mark 6, verse 17. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this, why? Well, because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to. And this is the reason, verse 20. Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and a holy man. So do you see an inner struggle going on with Herod? Do you see this inner struggle in his conscience going on? Then it goes on and says, says When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to John. Again, his conscience was saying one thing. It was saying, hey, this John uh, is a preacher, and this John is right in what he's saying, and you better do what he's saying. So John confronts Herod. He basically says, hey, Herod, uh, you two are living in sin. You two are living in adultery. It's not lawful for you to have her as your wife. You're sinning by being with that woman every day. You need to repent before the wrath of God comes down on you. John said this. He didn't just say this behind closed doors with Herod. He said this in public with Herod. He didn't care who heard. He called sin, sin when he saw it, even to their faces, even if they were a king. And the crazy thing about this whole thing was Herod respected the fact that John told him the truth. Herod respected the fact that John uh, brought the truth to him, spoke up even to him. I would say if John had some public relations consultants, they'd have probably say, Hey, John, tone down the rhetoric a little bit. Tone down this little condemnation thing you've got going. Let's be a little more diplomatic because, by the way, this is the king. He could take you out any moment. John didn't care. He was there to tell the truth, and he told the truth. So when you get down to it, I look at this. John was probably one of the best friends that Herod ever had because he told him the truth. Let me say today, if you have a friend that tells you the truth, even when things are uncomfortable, you better hang on to that friend because they're pretty few and far between. We all need someone in our life that'll tell us the truth that might say, hey, this is a bad idea, and I'll tell you why. I've got friends that I'm thankful for in my life like that, that I can trust, but it's not just me. We all need people in our lives like that because you better look out if you've got someone that's always coming up to you and complimenting you all the time. That's never, ever critical about anything you do because I wonder how close and true a friend are they really. Because a true friend sometimes will wound you. Do you realize that? Not to hurt you, but to actually help you. They will wound you like a surgeon with a scalpel. It may cause some pain, but he's taking something out of you that otherwise might kill you. I heard it said one time that a true friend stabs you in the front. An enemy stabs you in the back, but a true friend will stab you in the front. I believe with all of my heart, maybe today more than ever, we need more people like John in our world. We need more men and women who simply tell the truth. We need them everywhere. We need them in our culture. We definitely need them behind our pulpits. We need them in our... uh, Political arena, in our government, amen? People that will tell the truth. Now Herodias, going back to his wife, is really ticked off. She's burning with anger against this John. I can hear her thinking, uh, uh, this John is so bad. Uh, I'm going to get that John the Baptist if it's the last thing I do. So the king is having a birthday party. There's a lot of music going on, a lot of drinking, a lot of partying going on. And all the area leaders and all of King Herod's friends are there at the party. And Herodias' daughter, so it would be Herod's stepdaughter, comes in and she dances in front of these guys. I don't know what kind of dance she danced, but I can guarantee you it was not the hokey pokey. Amen? (laughs) It was not the hokey pokey. I'm thinking it was probably some sexual, erotic, exotic dance that just inflamed these guys in their lust. And by the way, where is Herodias' conscience when she lets her daughter go and dance in front of these guys and get them all worked up? So the party's going on, and now you've got King Herod on an all-out drunk. His, His mind is pickled with alcohol. And his stepdaughter gets up, and she does this erotic dance, and got him and all of his guests worked into a sexual, lustful frenzy. Look what it says in verse 22. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guest. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And this guy had a lot in his kingdom, but I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. It's no secret to any one of us that we make some pretty poor decisions, some very irrational decisions when we are driven by lust. Amen, amen, or ouch. I'll say ouch. A husband will walk away from his faithful wife and his loving children because he uses the excuse, I'm having a midlife crisis. Or wives walk out on their husbands and abandon their kids because they're in a lustful situation. Let me tell you, lust is a powerful force. Lust is a very powerful, destructive thing. That's why we need to not feed our lust. We need to starve our lust. Amen? When you get a lustful thought, the best thing you could ever do is to shut it down as fast as you possibly can shut it down. Herod didn't exactly do that. So Herod tells her that her dance is amazing. You were awesome out there. I'm going to give you anything you want up to half of my kingdom. Then verse 24, she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? Well, her mom doesn't even have to think. She immediately says, the head of John the Baptist, that's what I want. Can you see Salome running into Herodias and saying, Mama, uh, the king loved my dance. Uh, He said he's going to give us anything we want up to half of his kingdom. What do you want? She says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I'm thinking Salome probably didn't have that in her mind at all. She's probably thinking, I get that new iPhone 10. That's going to be great. You know, she's probably thinking, I get that new convertible chariot. That's going to be great. But Mama steps in and immediately says, I want the head of John the Baptist who's in prison. I want his head on a platter. I want it now. So go right back to that party while Herod has all of his friends around him. Verse 25, it says, at once the girl hurried into the king with a request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Look at verse 26. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guest, he did not want to refuse her. He should have retracted that offer right then and there, right? He should have backtracked on that offer. But he was so worried about the opinions of everyone else that he did. not Look at verse 27. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. Just think of that picture. Pretty gruesome, if you ask me. I heard it said one time that John was the man who kept his conscience but lost his head, while Herod was the man who took John's head and lost his conscience. Amen? Think about that. A lot of people will say, I'm just going to trust my conscience on this. I'm going to let my conscience be my guide. Here's the problem with this. Your conscience... uh, It's just a result of what you feed it. Your conscience is a result of what you put into it. It's very possible for you and I to program our conscience to think what we're doing that's wrong is right. It's very possible for us to program our conscience to be totally convinced that even though something is wrong, we see it as right. Larry Osborne, a great man of God, once said this. He said, our conscience doesn't really tell us if we're violating God's law or standards so much as it tells us we're, we're violating our own standards. I mean, think about that. There are some standards that we have to uphold. A lot of us think that our consci- conscience is a spiritual thermometer, right? We think it's a spiritual thermometer. What do thermometers do? They tell you how hot or cold or just right something is, right? That's not the way our minds work. That's not the way our conscience works. I would say more than a spiritual thermometer, we are a spiritual or should be a spiritual thermostat. A, a thermometer only tells you the actual temperature, right? It only tells you the actual temperature, temperature, but a thermostat, you can dial in how hot you want something to get or how cold you want something to get or how far you want something to go. Think about that. So when you take your temperature, we use a the thermometer, right? You place the thermometer underneath your tongue or somewhere down south, I'm just saying. <laughs> but it'll give you a reading on your temperature and what it actually is. It doesn't change your temperature. Your temperature from a thermometer is going to read what it is, unless the thermometer is broke. So I want to give you some things on your conscience this morning. Four things if you're taking notes. The first thing is probably it is the most important. Your conscience was created by God. You realize that the conscience you have within you, living within you, was created by God. Kind of what we've done with that a lot of times has been up to us and we've taken a wrong path. But I say your conscience is more like a warning light telling you that what you're contemplating on doing is wrong. And if you do it, it's your conscience that steps in and says, I told you not to do that. You shouldn't have done it. And the thing is, we all have a conscience. Look what it says in Romans chapter 2, verse 14. Paul says this, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, but at other times even defending them. I know that sounds a little bit confusing, but to simplify it, it's saying those that uh, uh, believe in God's Word, belong to Him, are going to be judged by that Word. But even those that don't belong to Him, they're going to be judged too, because God has put within them an internal conscience. God has put within every man and woman an internal uh, conscience to bear witness of God. Um, No matter who you are. You don't even have to read a written law to tell you that lying, lying, cheating, and stealing is wrong, right? I mean, it it really should be an automatic. I mean, it's already uh, put inside of each one of us by God. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Remember Adam and Eve in the Garden? Whenever Whenever they sinned, they felt guilty about that sin and what they had done. They suddenly realized they were naked. Before that, they didn't even realize it, but as soon as they sinned, they realized they were naked and wanted to cover themselves up. How did they know that? Their conscience. Their conscience was at work. Not only did they try to hide their nakedness, when God came to talk to them, they tried to hide from God. Again, because their conscience made them feel guilty. Our conscience is there to make us feel guilty. Our conscience is there to convict us. conscience is like that yellow line on a two-lane highway. Whenever you see that, you know you're not supposed to pass the car in front of you. It's not safe to pass that car in front of you. Does it mean you can't pass that car in front of you? No, but it's not a good idea. You're doing something that you shouldn't. So when I look at our conscience, I believe God has given us that as the yellow line. to say, hey, baby, slow down. There's a hill here. There might be a car coming. Give us a warning. Second point, if you're taking notes, your conscience can be deformed by sin. Sin can change a whole lot of things. Look what it says in Titus chapter 1, verse 15. To those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny Him. You know when a person continually uh, ignores the guidance of their conscience? When they continually ignore that, their conscience can become faulty, defective. You can take a perfectly good compass and... Face north, and it's going to point north. But if you take a magnet up against that compass, guess what's going to happen? It's going to go crazy. It's going to point in all sorts of directions. It's not going to be a reliable guide like the compass should be. I said all that to say the same thing happens to your conscience. When you expose yourself to repeated sin, after a while, you're not going to be a reliable guide for God or for anyone else. Your conscience doesn't uh, become ruined overnight. It's not immediately. Usually, it's a gradual thing. It just comes on little by little by little. And a matter of fact, have you ever told a lie? Probably the first time you ever told a lie, it really bothered you. Most of us, it bothered. Second time, it didn't bother you so much. The third time, it bothered you even less. And the fourth time and fifth time, and on and on it goes, the, more, the less it bothers you. Uh, we all know people that can look you in the eye, and you know they're lying. Look you in the eye and lie and lie and lie and lie. And it doesn't bother them. I would say it's because they've become desensitized to it. I would say it's because they've lied so much that they don't see lying as a big deal. So your conscience can be deformed, sidetracked by sin. Number three, if you're taking notes, your conscience can become deadened. Do you realize that your conscience can actually die in a way? You can commit sin so often in your life over a period of time that your conscience eventually basically dies. And proof of that is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Did you catch that? Whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Seared is a medical term. It actually means cauterization. It's the allowing of your conscience to be desensitized. You know, repeated sinning over and over again does that to your conscience. It becomes like a seared scar tissue. How many know that a scar tissue uh, doesn't have a whole lot of sensitivity to it? I mean, it has been so calloused. The thing is, the more you sin, the less you're convicted. You become so calloused that after after a while, you don't even realize you're doing wrong. You don't even feel the pain. I wonder how those Nazi prison guards ever murdered millions and millions of Jews in World War II? How could they have done that? I would say that their hearts had been seared. Their minds had been seared. Their conscience was seared, uh, had been deadened to the point where they thought they were doing the world a favor by killing those Jews. How does a conscience die? Well, it doesn't die overnight. It dies little by little Decision, wrong decision, after wrong decision, after wrong decision. Starts out small, builds into bigger things. That's why we have to be so careful of what we input into our minds and into our conscience. We have to be so um, careful because if we're not careful, little by little, that conscience that God has given us to help us live the abundant life is going to die. Back to Herod in the text. Uh, In the 14th verse, uh, I don't know how long it uh, was and how much time passed, but there was some time that passed. But Jesus' fame was spreading to everyone around, reports of his healings, reports of his miracles, his teachings, and it got back to Herod. The people were all wondering who this Jesus is, some of them were, but Herod, look what, how he processes this whole thing. Verse 16, but when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. I'm thinking, wait a minute, that party you had has been over for a while, the hangover's over, the fuzz is over, you must be pretty confused. He's still thinking that this Jesus was actually John the Baptist coming back from the dead. Let me ask you this. Do you think his conscience was a little whacked out? Do you think his conscience was a little wacky? I believe he was totally overridden with guilt that he had killed a good man. Not only killed him, he had beheaded John the Baptist. So when he heard about the teachings and the preachings uh, of Jesus, and it sounded a whole lot like what he had seen and heard John do, he all of a sudden gets fearful. I'm thinking, he's thinking, he's coming back to get me. And he says, Jesus is actually John being raised from the dead. But think about this. He could have used all sorts of excuses. He could have rationalized it all uh, before his sin. He could have said, you know, it was his wife that nagged him into it. He could have said it was his stepdaughter that worked him up. He could have said he drank too much. He could have said it was all the peer pressure he had. But afterwards... After he had sinned, he was alone with his sin. Just him and his sin, thinking about what he had done. I believe he was consumed with grief over what he had done. I once heard it said, and this is so true, that sin always looks different before you commit it than after you commit it. Amen? Sin always looks different before you commit it than it does after we commit it. I would say every one of us could say amen to that. But I'm going to leave on a high note on Father's Day, okay? Okay? The good thing about it, point number four, is your conscience can be reset. If you need your conscience to be reset, even today, God's in the uh, business of resetting consciences today. If you want to shape and mold your conscience to make the right decisions when it comes to right and wrong, doesn't it make sense to turn to Him, the one that created your conscience, to let Him step in and influence, let Him step in and guide it? David knew that. David knew that. It says, Oh, how I love your law. He's talking to God. I, meditated on, I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, more uh, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. He says, I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. What David is basically saying is, God, your word uh, has made me wiser than my enemies, made me wiser than my enemies, given me more, more understanding than the elders, and it kept me from every evil path along the way. In other words, he said, I let your word mold my character. I let your word mold my conscience. It made me so that I could trust my instincts when it came to right and wrong. And it gave him the ability to be called by God of all, a man after God's own heart. I once read a story about a man who worked in a small-town factory, and one of his jobs was to blow the work whistle three times a day, seven, twelve, and four. But every morning, on his way to work, he stopped and set his pocket watch by a large clock sitting in the window of a jewelry store. Then he would know when to blow the the whistle. After doing this for years, one day he happened to be in the neighborhood of the jewelry store. He stopped by, went into the jewelry store, and he asked the owner... How the clock in the shop window kept such perfect time. The owner said, oh, I set that clock every day by the factory whistle. (laughs) Those two guys kept each other in sync and didn't even realize it. Let me tell you, God's word keeps us in sync with God, whether we realize it or not. Because when you become a Christian, you set your conscience by his word. You set your conscience by the Bible. Look what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's Word always points us to Jesus. Do you realize that? His Word will always point you to Jesus, and Jesus becomes the standard, the only standard of right and wrong. So when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, your determination of right or wrong isn't from your conscience and letting it be your guide, because I hope by now you realize you can't let your conscience be your guide. We don't decide what's right or wrong by the way we feel. How many know your feelings can fail you, and they usually do? Our feelings are unreliable. The standard of morality that God has given us is this word right here, is the Bible for each and every one of us. So the Bible will guide you into a true understanding of right and wrong, and it will also get you to heaven. Just like a story I heard, true story, about a teenage girl in Colombia who was given a Spanish New Testament. She read that New Testament until one day her father came in, caught her reading it, and told her that she's not to read it anymore because it's full of lies and fantasy. But the girl kept on reading until one day her father came home unexpectedly and found her reading the New Testament. Grabbed it out of her hands, throwed it in his briefcase. father went off to work as a mining engineer. Several hours later, there was a muffled explosion and then the sound of sirens. There had been a cave-in, an explosion at the mine. The father was trapped in that mine with 30 other workers. The rescuers took five days to get to those men, and by the time they got to the men, every one of them were dead. All the men, including this young girl's father, had died. But curiously, when the rescuers found her father... He had that New Testament clutched in his praying hands. They opened it up and there was a note inside that said to my daughter, keep reading this New Testament. It's true and it's right. And I will see you one day in heaven. Then they turned to the back page where the father had signed the commitment card after praying the sinner's prayer. But that wasn't the end of the story. They turned to the next page and they saw the names of the 30 other minors that had died. So my question today is, can you let your conscience be your guide? I hope you're realizing right now, no way. No way. We have to let God be our guide. We have to let God's Word guide us, illuminated by His Holy Spirit. And unless we allow God's thinking to affect us and affect our conscience, there's always going to be something missing in your life. So if you're not allowing God's uh, love and affection and His, His character influence your life, I tell you, there's a hole in your heart the size of Jesus today. And you need Him. And He loves you. He wants every one of us to know Him and to love Him. So the question, can you let your conscience be your guide? No way. No way. So how about we stop letting Him, letting ourselves guide ourselves and start letting His Word guide us. Could you stand to your feet this morning? God gave us a conscience for a good reason. Yeah, it's that yellow line on the highway that keeps us from passing when we shouldn't pass. Moving out in a lane we shouldn't be into. Doing things that we shouldn't do. We've all made mistakes because we were driven by lust. We were driven by feelings. And we failed. After hearing this message, God is giving us all a better way out. To trust Him and believe His ways are always better. So when I pray this prayer, I just want you where you're at, with your every head bowed, every eye closed, just to agree with me in faith that God has better things ahead of us as we start to listen and be more sensitive to His Word. So, Father God, I pray that You would help us realize that we can't base our choices and decisions off of our feelings. Never. We can't let our consciences be our guide unless we let Your Word first be our guide to direct our decisions. Lord God, guide each one of us here by the power and the presence of Your Holy Spirit May your word and your spirit be our GPS system to guide us through life and to get us where you want us to go. Father, I pray that you'd forgive us for trying to do things our way instead of your way. I pray you'd mold and shape our consciences according to your will, your purpose, and your plan for our lives so that we'll be all that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, and everyone said amen. Happy Father's Day, guys. There's a treat for you out in the lobby. God bless you all.